listeners, welcome to another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast. Boy, guys, as we record this episode, spring is in the air. I don't know about where you are, but where I am, as I look out my window, there's blossoms on the trees and the grass is turning green. And if you haven't updated your lawnmower for the summer season, it's time to do it now because you're going to have to be mowing soon or whoever does your mowing for you is going to need to get mowing soon. Flowers are popping up and there's new life in the air. And it's such a great time of year. Easter has now passed and we're all turning our sights towards summer programming, thinking ahead towards fall. And as we think about what we might be doing for VBS, what we might be doing for fall ministry, how we're going to finish out the rest of the spring this year, we need to be thinking about building and equipping our teams. And so we all know how challenging it can be to find and recruit quality volunteers, but also to invest in those volunteers so that we don't just churn them through our programs and lose them, but that we make them people who are truly invested and truly connected in the lives of our kids and in our ministries. That's the goal. Well, that's not easy to do, and it certainly doesn't happen by accident. And so we're going to be talking today with our friend, Nick Blevins. Nick is the uh, next-gen pastor at Community Christian Church up in Baltimore, Maryland. Nick, we're so glad to have you to talk about volunteers and how we can build our teams. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this as well. It's like all of us need to do better, right, with recruiting volunteers, leading volunteers. It's that most important thing and it's most important thing for our church. And hopefully we'll have a good discussion about how we can do it better. Oh, man, no doubt. Yeah, this is one of those conversations that everybody needs to hear and that everyone needs to share. So if you're not the person who does the recruiting, maybe you could be, first of all, right? Recruiting is everyone's job. Uh, but we share this with people who need to hear it. The information that Nick has is so valuable. Uh, by the way, listeners, Nick has a new book. It's called The Volunteer Playbook. We'll tell you where you can find that later, but uh, what he has done is he's outlined some really valuable tips and ideas, philosophies and strategies around how you can recruit, train, and empower more volunteers for your ministry. And so we're going to be talking about some concepts that Nick has written into the volunteer playbook, and uh, we want to unpack that. And I think, Nick, we're going to take two episodes to do this. There's so much meaty content, so we'll get into this now. And then listeners, we'll come back with a follow-up episode really soon where you can get the rest of the story. So Nick, that said, before we start, I often like to just kind of ask a question or two to get to know our guests. So listeners, let's, what should we ask Nick? Nick, okay, let's talk about, I mentioned uh, the lawn. It's time to mow the grass. Have, are you the lawnmower at your house? Is that one of your jobs? I am not anymore. When we Ooh. moved uh, a number of years ago, yeah, actually my neighbor who's retired, he uh, mows lawns and his riding lawnmower, which is kind of what you need here where we live now. And as much as I would probably like riding a lawnmower more than I did pushing a lawnmower, <laughs> I don't really love mowing the lawn, Chuck. I'm, I'm going really? to be honest. Yeah, it's one, it is one of those things where it's stress relieving. Like as a church leader, there's so many things that just you can't finish or, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I do remember enjoying it once you get into it and it, listen to a podcast, right? And just kind of. Doing yep, manual labor that, on, get, yeah, yeah, it's just stress relieving. But the idea of it, I never liked. So I'm, I love the fact that my neighbor, who's a great guy, does that now, and and uh, and, and hopefully he won't do it during the podcast recording. <laughs> do you? So do you have a big lawn? Yeah, it's about we we have a yard that sits on about an acre and a half, and about yeah. a, about half of that's in the woods. So you're not mowing that. 
So it's big enough. It's like, I mean, you could push mow it, but boy, that would take you a long time. And of course, that's what, I mean, that's mainly what he does now. He's retired. He he does about, I don't know, like half the lawns in this neighborhood. And, you know, as soon as we moved in, he was on it, you know, pushing for it. And I'm like, okay, you don't have to twist my arm that much. I think some people just love mowing the lawn and other people really dread it. And so I've had seasons of both in life. Like it's when I had a lawn service, that was one of the greatest gifts Right. To just have that free time to not have to do it. Because if you mow a lawn that's that size, it's going to take you a couple hours a week. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm you amazed use... how fast I'm amazed how fast they do it with the, you know, the it was a zero turn mower. And yeah. Thing like the that. Zero yeah. turns and knocking oh, it out quick. We yeah. so we have here in middle Tennessee, which is beautiful right now. We have about three acres that we're on, which is big by most people's standards. It's like a big lawn in Tennessee oh, yeah. where we live. It's like small. Right. Because yeah. we've got tons of people who have farmland and hundreds of acres and all kinds of things. So our house is kind of like a big yard. Fortunately, I'm at a stage in life where I have two teenage sons. And so my mm. boys are the lawnmowers. I get the weed whacking in the edging. My wife and I do like the she does the flowers. You know, I help get the, the garden beds like with the bark chips or the pine needles. We went pine straw this year. So do you have a preference in bark chips or pine needles or do you have something else for your landscaping? I don't. I, you know, it's the, so we've tapped into now something that is absolutely not really a passion of mine, even though I wish it would look good. So all the things, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, I do know what you're talking about, <laughs> but it's not something that I have a preference on. So it's like, no, nah, we should, like, in fact, the other day, my wife and I were like, we need to mulch again. It's like, yeah, I know. There you, go. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, ah, right. here we go. Here we go. You know, it's looking rough, especially since we got a dog last year and he's, you know, damaged the yard himself. And so, yeah, this is this is one of those things. My dad loves this, which is really funny because it did not translate from father to son. Uh -huh. uh, this is like my dad's life. He's you know, he, you know, has plants and vegetables and garden and flowers and just does all that stuff really well. And he's actually helped us set it up. But, you know, we're not so good at keeping it up, Chuck. So, you know, well, my, my lawn is not really a great lawn. It's really green weeds that we just keep short. Right. And if, same, so I know same, some people yeah. are really into their lawns. Some of my favorites, Nick, that maybe you and I need to think towards in the future is Florida and Arizona. Because in oh, both yeah. of those places, it is totally legit. If your lawn is made out of just rocks, just rocks yes. and sand, it can work. And fake grass. And have you the, seen the like, they'll do the fake grass too. Like churches down there, even houses will have like that, like it looks like, like a turf. putting yeah, it's like a putt yeah. course or something. Yeah. Yep. I need that. I need well, that. Well, there you go. So listeners, <laughs> wherever you're at with your lawn, have somebody mow it so that it's not out of control. Oh boy. Well, and if you can get someone to volunteer to mow it, that's even better. There's my segue. That's the big segue. Nick, let's talk a little bit about, about recruiting, training, empowering volunteers. The truth is we need more. You always need more mm -hmm. volunteers, right? And so uh, recruiting can't just be something that we do once a year during a little season, kind of like the Christian radio station has that drive, the pledge drive, where everyone mm -hmm. knows we're recruiting. It's got to be more of just a part of what we do, doesn't it? Let's start. Why don't you set us up? What's the current state that churches are dealing with right now uh, in this time, post-COVID, where we are? What does volunteer, uh, what's the volunteer situation look like out in the world? What are people feeling and where do we start? Well, yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this from our church experience and working with some other church leaders. I feel like what happened was during COVID, you know, churches were starting meeting again, but they were a fraction of what they were before COVID. And volunteers were the, you know, majority of those people attending. So when, you know, when our church started back, I mean, we were like 20 some percent of what we were, you know, 
originally, you know, before COVID, when we started meeting there in late 2020. And but all most of those people coming were volunteers. So we had enough volunteers. That was fine. But then over the years, like through 21 into 22, attendance started, you know, catching up. And at some point, I feel like attendance almost outpaced where volunteers were. And and then that's kind of normal. It seems like for most churches, we always need more volunteers. But I feel like a lot of churches are in that place now where they may not be even attendance wise where they were quite before COVID. Maybe they're 80 some percent, yeah. but volunteerism maybe isn't even 80 some percent yet. You know, it might be 70 some percent. And so they're still growing. And I think it's harder to recruit now than it even was before, which nobody wants to hear that. That's not encouraging. Yeah, yeah. But I just think people are more protective of their time. They're more guarded. They're less willing to commit to anything. They had like a taste of a different life through the yes. pandemic that had more margin. And so now they're they're less willing. And as, as that becomes more and more in the rear view, like the memory of that kind of time during 2020, that might change. But I feel like now it's even harder to recruit. And it was hard to recruit before the pandemic, right? right? Like, it's not like it was easy then. So I feel like that's kind of the state of things now. And I'd, I'd be curious if that's what you think, too, if that's what you're hearing. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I agree. I think it is getting harder to get quality <clears throat> volunteers. I, I think people have found other things to do with their time. And so now it's more we're, we're competing even more than ever with other options uh, to get people who are willing to give their time. It's it, They're looking for and I've and I've said this before and I believe this to be true. People are, are no longer willing to volunteer out of a sense of need or obligation. Mm -hmm. They need to, we need to recruit them from a standpoint of, of uh, return on investment for their time to show that there's a, uh, it's an opportunity to use their gifts in a way that is, has high kingdom value and is extremely important in terms of the, the, the reward or the return on their time. And so we have mm -hmm. to be able to recruit from a standpoint that says, listen, the need that we have, it's not just everyone bow your head and close your eyes in any warm body, right? We, but we need people who are invested, committed, connected, bought in, and this is an opportunity for you to partner with us. That's just a very different conversation than uh, we need two people in the nursery or we're going to have to uh, you know, close it down next week. Yes. And I think the, you're kind of getting at what I, the way I describe it is people have their list of priorities that are taking up their time, right? The things they're giving their life to, we all have that. And if I'm like everybody else or most people where I don't actually have a list. So like I haven't thought through and prioritized everything from one to, you know, 200 or whatever. And I just believe that we can be bold about encouraging people to put serving in church really high on that list. Like not above your own relationship with God, leading your family, but it's it's top five and, and it can push out a lot of other things. And I think we have to be bold about that, not in an aggressive way or whatever, where people are like, oh, I'm definitely not serving with Nick. He's weird. Um, right. But in a way where that we don't feel bad about challenging them, because we because here the thing is that we all believe is that's going to be really good for their faith growth. It's not just for the church. It's certainly not for us. But man, what is that going to do to grow their faith? It's going to do amazing things. I mean, serving is one of the biggest things that grew my faith. So I think we have to be a little more bold about asking people to, yeah, give this kind of time, prioritize this, push this way up the list, you know, in your priorities. And that's probably not how most people look at it. Though. Probably look at it like, yeah, I'll serve when I can. Where can I fit that in? You know, you know, 27th on my list or something like that. And you said, Nick, you said we can do that more boldly. I think a lot of us approach recruiting almost apologetically. Like, mm -hmm. I really hate to ask, and I'm so sorry to you know, to, I know you have a lot going on and we almost say no for people. 
mm-hmm. rather than yep. convincing them. And it's, I, I believe there's a lot of leaders who are just timid about recruiting for one reason or another. So t- tell me a little bit about some approaches, right? So you mentioned we can be more bold and we don't have to feel bad. Is that true? And then what about this idea that recruiting just needs to be a natural part of something that we're always doing, not something that's a pledge drive approach? Yes, and I, there are people, you know, that we've met. I think of uh, Jim Weidman, great mentor yeah. of mine, who Jim yeah. could recruit somebody off the street who doesn't even go to the church to serve next Sunday, right? Like that's Jim. Um, I think he and there has, are, actually. Yeah. It, it, it definitely has. <laughs> and there are leaders like that where they're just natural recruiters. They, they don't fear the rejection. They can talk to anybody. They can invite anybody in to serve. That is not most church leaders I meet. That's a very small percentage of people. So I think for most people, it's about what's, what's the plan and how can you commit time to it? I mean, you know, anytime I get to ask church leaders, how many hours a week do you spend on volunteer recruiting? The answer I get is zero or one, maybe two. And the people yep. that are one or two hours are like less than 20% of the hands that are raised. And even them, I think sometimes they're just, you know, I gave an hour a few weeks ago. Does that count? You know what I mean? Right. They feel like in that moment, they got to say that. So obviously, if we're not spending the time on it, and I get it, sun, Sunday comes every week, there's, you know, the, the curriculum has to be edited, this has to be sent, I have to go to that meeting, it's not even my choice. Yeah. And so those all things feel more urgent. And so we have to give it the time. I think that's one of the most important things. But then the other thing is just a plan. I don't know about you, but I was never trained necessarily to recruit volunteers. Like mm-hmm. even when our church started 17 years ago, and I came on staff, and I, I'd, I'd served in my home church as a volunteer, leading volunteers that I didn't, I didn't get any training then either. You know, I don't hear a lot of people tell me to get in volunteer recruitment training in college. And so what happens is you just kind of do it however you saw it done. Yeah. Or what, you know, you lead, you, yeah, you rely on or the church. It. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Can we, can we announce something from stage? Like you just rely on other things. And so having a plan to recruit is one of those important things. And in the book, I just talk about a, a five-step uh, framework that we use. And it's not rocket science. In fact, a lot of people will tell us when they've heard this, they'll say, yeah, this is similar to like what I used to do in my other job in sales. And I'm like, I get, yeah. I get it, which makes it sound terrible. But what they mean is all it is is just a, uh, <clears throat> a way to contact people, have a conversation, and then invite them to serve. And of course, the idea is you have to do that enough because not everybody's going to say yes. So are you contacting enough people? And so that's what I talk about in the book. And I think most church leaders I talk to don't really do that. Recruiting is a little bit more organic. And what that actually means is it doesn't happen that much. Yeah. You, something you talk about is the analogy of going off that high dive platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that story, how that connects. Yeah, I, uh, uh, this was, I was eight years old, so this is a long time ago. It's actually near your neck of the woods because this was in Southern Virginia, getting close to Tennessee, where my uh, grandparents live, my cousins live there. And we traveled there we, every year, you know, for family. And we, we went to one day, we go there, and my cousins had three cousins at the time. And, and then my fourth cousin was born later. But anyway, two of my cousins are a year and two years younger than me. And we go to the pool, their local pool there. And it's got this 10-foot high dive. And for me, being an eight-year-old, I've been swimming plenty of times. That was fine. But I'd never been on a high dive. No, and it seems so high when you're up there as a little kid. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I don't even know if I'd even been on like a low dive. I can't even remember. But I just remember getting there and thinking, wow, that that's tall. But we're not doing that. Like we're kids. That's like for adults, right? I mean, as soon as we get there, my cousins both run up that thing and jump off. And I'm like, oh in my in my mind, I'm like, I just know they're gonna want me to come do this. And so it's like, okay. 
and it's my cousins. And I'm like, I'm not backing down. I got to do this. Like, there's like, it's like, I couldn't say no. You know what I mean? It didn't matter yeah. how I felt yeah. about it. And uh, so I, up the ladder I go, you know what I mean? And get to the edge there. And it's like, what do they tell you? Like, don't look down. Well, everybody looks down or, you know, it looks worse, you know, from down on the ground than it does up there. No, it doesn't. It looks worse from up there than it does on the ground. And I, and I, I knew it though. It's like, I got to go. Now there's a line behind me, the whole thing. So I don't even know how long I thought about it up there, but I just thought I, I got it as I'm going up the ladder. That part was easy. Get to the end. It's like, okay, this ain't easy. This, I feel like I'm a hundred feet up. Like, am I going to die if I jump off here? Like, you know, that's what you're thinking as a kid. And then I do it. And sure enough, it was awesome. I loved it. We must've went up and down that high dive like 30 times that day. And it's just a reminder that you know, going up the ladder actually for me was the easy part because that I didn't have to stand on the edge yet. I wasn't looking down. Jumping was the hard part. And the reason I tell that story is because uh, we were just talking about reaching out to people, you know, to invite them to serve. And I find this very funny. Chuck, maybe you have some insight for me, but we've taught this method that's taught in the book for years before it was in this book. And the idea is that you build a list of prospects, people that could serve in your ministry. And that just means they're not serving somewhere else. That's it. Like you haven't qualified them yet. You haven't met them yet. And so the idea is if you need, you know, 10 new volunteers, can you get a hundred names on a list who could serve? And to me, that's the easy part. That's going up the ladder, literally get in your church database, find a hundred people that aren't serving, get them in a list and you're going to contact them. To me, that's the easy part going up the ladder. Really easy. The next part isn't as easy because you're going to contact them. And you're going to invite them to a conversation. So that's the part where you're getting close to the edge of the diving board. And obviously the point where you really invite them to serve, that's like, that's that jump, you know, that's the scariest part for most people. None of us like to be uh, put in that situation or get rejected or have yeah. somebody tell us no, or some of us don't even like to make other people answer it. Like, or put right. them, you're right. The per it's like, I hate, like you said, I hate to ask. And so I'm just I'm surprised though, with all the leaders that we've helped coach through this process so far, so many people don't even get up the diving board up the ladder. They don't add the prospects to the list. And I'm like, that's actually the easiest part. And it determines your success the most. So I find that funny. Well, and I think that analogy of, you know, once you finally make the jump and mm -hmm. once you've done, because we, I feel like a lot of times we just put this off and we avoid it. We know we need to be working on this, but it's easy to come up with other things to do and procrastinate because we're uncomfortable being rejected or the idea of being mm -hmm. rejected. And I think that's something is, that you pointed out in the book is, is this idea that uh, we need to be aware about ratios, right? There's a volunteer, you use VCR as an acronym, the volunteer conversion ratio. The reality listeners, guys, every person you ask is not going to say yes. And so in mm -hmm. fact, Nick, you've identified kind of a ratio that's more realistic. What, what is that ratio in your mind? Yeah. And I used it in my example there. We say 10x. 10x. So like if you need whatever, how many volunteers you need to recruit, let's say you need to recruit five volunteers, you need 10 times that number on your prospect list. So 50. Right, if I need to recruit five volunteers. Slower, listeners. Yeah, it, you exactly. need to ask 10 people to get one potentially. Yes. Yeah. And the reason for that is I actually, this is a little uh, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I used to say four. For, for okay. years, the number I shared was actually 4x, which uh -huh. isn't nearly as many. But yeah, what I learned. That sounds way better. It does, doesn't it? And it seems more likely, right? Like you'd think you could get one out of four people to say yes to serving. And that's true in a sense. You kind of you kind of you can do that. Yeah. But it's what a we learned is percent conversion rate, right? That's 25% yeah. is pretty high. Yeah, you think that's fine. 
But the um, our experience was one, people weren't putting even that number on their prospect list. Going back to like not going up the ladder, it was like, okay, so let's raise it so people put even more. And then the other thing is, um, you know, one of the methods we teach is emailing people first and then texting them later. I mean, half of them don't even reply, Chuck. So yeah. like half yeah. of the, you know, the, the, the 10X is because five of the 10 just don't even reply, maybe even yep. six. So you're kind of only dealing with a small number to start with anyway. But that's why it's important to have such a big, number of prospects on your list 10 times what you need because six, 60 to 70 percent may never reply so that is like a soft rejection in a sense but yep. it doesn't feel as bad as the one where they say no i can't do that but it is you know, it's, it's, a, it's a funnel right so top of it funnel, is. you've got to fill mm -hmm. a lot more people on the top of that in order to get the one that you need at the yes. bottom end and i don't think most church leaders think about it that way it's kind of like no. i need five leaders i need to go talk to five people and it's like, eh, you may need to talk to 20 people, which means you may need to reach out to 50 people. You know what I mean? So, I, so uh, this, and this is not a construct that you used in your book this time, but let's talk about this. Maybe this is something I need to write somewhere. <laughs> but so I've got a background in marketing. And one of the things we talk about in marketing that really, I believe, applies really well to recruiting in ministry is the concept of seeds, nets, and spears. Seeds, nets, and spears. And so seeding says... If we want someone to, know, something, someone to know what's going on, we need to be scattering seeds about this all the time, everywhere. So, mm -hmm. so there are little sprouts can pop up of, oh, there's an opportunity or, oh, there's something happening there. And so we need to be scattering seeds. Sometimes we need to be casting nets, which lets us pull in a group of people that are more targeted than just seeding, right? But, but maybe not just a, a, a spear is my next level, right? Mm -hmm. um, seeds or, or nets can be... We're going to cast spread seeds everywhere, but we're going to pull together those 10 or those 50 that we need, knowing that within that, we're going to identify and specifically target these five who are going to rise up uh, and go after them as an individual. So that concept of going broad and then moving mm -hmm. more and more uh, targeted with our recruiting is something I think is of value. Now you talk. It Nick, is. Um, it is. And if I could add something there, I yeah, think please. Like the, the best volunteer recruiter would actually have kind of like you just illustrated there, a variety of tools in the toolbox. They wouldn't just be the same technique every time. In fact, like the prospects and reaching out to them and that whole thing that we teach in the five-part recruiting framework, that's the, I think the best method because it's the personal method, right? Yeah. Reaching out to people, having conversations. But you, you actually and can't do that. I totally agree. I, I think yeah. that coffee conversation that's one-on-one -on -one where you're casting vision and they're seeing a specific fit for their gifts, absolutely. So yes, I, 100%. Yeah. And, and I think that's the best you actually, and as much as we say, you can recruit every week this way, that's sort of true, but not really. I mean, you're not going to contact prospects every week of every year. So you kind of yeah. need the net and the spear. Like you have to have different tools that you can go to at different times of the year, even, and they'll work in different ways. Like we do a summer team recruitment that we'll do, I guess, exactly a month from now. And it's been a great thing for us. And it's just another tool. And we get a larger number of people that, you know, sign up to serve then than we do even through this method that I'm talking about. So it's great to kind of do that. And then do something else a couple months later. And if you kind of get that rhythm going, and now you're recruiting different ways for different people, and you can actually see that growth as opposed to just relying on the one method, whether that's like an announcement from stage or something else. No matter which one method, one method is not nearly as effective mm -hmm. as a really orchestrated combination of seeds, nets, and spears. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, Nick, in, uh, as we get near the end of our episode here for this time, Let's talk a little bit about some of the barriers that we run into, right? Because we, we've got to get over the hurdle of actually doing, making the ask, 
uh, looking for people, building our prospect list, messaging them. But there are some common barriers that we run into or barriers that we might expect. What are some of those barriers that you've identified? Yeah, and I grew up going to church ever since I was two years old. And, you know, when I was like in my young 20s, I was on our, our church's church council, which I think I just was there because I was young, because it certainly wasn't for wisdom or anything like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember just our church council meetings, everybody needed volunteers, you know, like the people that led that committee or these teams. And one time I found out our church of about three to 400 had 75 teams, roles, committees that you could serve on. Not even roles isn't even the right word. It was more like events, ministries, teams. I mean, like one of those 75 things was our upward sports camp with 50 volunteers. And, and another everybody's one, competing for those yes, good prospects, and, and, and right? It, yeah. And a church of three or 400. I mean, one of them was Sunday school. Like, How many volunteers did you need for Sunday school? So like that one of, that was one of the things that's a barrier is just too many ministries. Yeah. And if your church is established, you know, the, the older your church is, the more likely this is probably an issue because over time, you know, things have gotten started. And for most of us, this is above our pay grade. Like, you know, as kids pastors, we're not like, hey, we're going to cut a third of our programs. Is that great? Okay, thanks. Uh, next week, you know, don't look for this, this, or this. So that's one. And it's tough. It is above a lot of our, our pay grades, but it's worth a conversation. You know, like, and the way I say it is, and this is kind of the math part of me, the analytical part. Yeah. I say, what if go around as a staff and figure out how many volunteers would we need to just kind of adequately staff everything we're doing? You know, not, not overstaffed, not even maybe 100%, but just adequately staffed and add up the number and see what it is. And a lot of churches would find out, you know, we're, say we're a church of 300 and we just figured out we need 700 volunteers to staff everything we're Ooh, doing. It'd yeah. be like, that's a sign, you know, that, you know, you're, you're probably doing too many things. Something's so, out of balance. Yeah. Yeah. And another big one, probably the biggest barrier to recruiting volunteers is competition. And that's a version of it. Competition where, because there's too many ministries and programs. Within the um, Another... Another version is if you have, like in kids ministry, for example, I know some of our listeners are probably in a church where you have one service, and that's that's hard, right, to recruit for children's ministry because they can go to the service or serve or in children's serve. ministry. Yep. Yes, they compete. And, you know, one of our church plants, uh, multiple actually of, of the church plants that we've helped start in this area, have done something really cool where they do a volunteer service that's not public before the public service. And I, I preached it one one time. I think it was like, 18 people. You know what I mean? Like we sang, we worshiped together. They did announcements, but it was modified knowing that it was volunteers. They actually injected some like vision in there. And then I preached and it was interesting. You know, I hadn't preached to 18 people before, or actually, I guess I had, but in like a practice setting or one time. And, uh, and it was, that was their like nine o'clock, not public service for these volunteers. And then, you know, the public service was like at 1030 and then they grew that, that church just what kept cool growing idea. and yeah, by the time they were 200, they launched it as an actual service, you know, once you'd had 40 volunteers in it. And so that's one way, you know, you can get around that. But th that even Sunday school, obviously, for kids ministry, you're trying to recruit volunteers. That's another barrier. And so as much as possible, I encourage churches just to figure out how can we do what we want to do, but not in a way that competes, you know, for the for people's time. And, and if it and if we can't change it, okay, we're going to have to use some of these methods and hope we can just overcome that. But certainly those are some of the barriers that make it harder to recruit. Fantastic. Great insights, Nick. We will have you back real soon to do another episode. The book, listeners, is the Volunteer Playbook. Nick, where can we find this? Volunteerplaybook.com is the easiest way. It just redirects to a page on my site. But obviously you can buy it. Amazon is what where most people are probably going to get their books and whether that's... And if you buy, here's a tip. If you get 
the book, you can get the audio version free. So if you're, cool. if you like to listen to books like I do, you could yeah. actually, uh, you know, get two for one there if you do it that way first. But if you, if you subscribe to Audible or something, it'll be there eventually. That'll probably be the last place it hits. But the paperback and Kindle are out April 18. Fantastic. And you could even listen to it while you're mowing your lawn. Mm, there you, you go. Can. Or somebody circle. else's lawn. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Nick Blevins, thank you so much for being here. Listeners, thank you for listening. We'll see you back again soon for another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast.